This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you're having a fantastic day. This is episode 40. Holy smokes, 4-0. It is an arbitrary number that has a zero behind it, but... I, yeah, I mean, I guess at episode one I could have imagined 40 episodes, but that's a lot. And I want to thank everybody for listening again. I mean, if people were not listening, I probably would not be doing this, so thanks a lot. And on this show, I have Ed Ayers. Ed Ayers is familiar to a lot of people. Uh, he is the president and professor of history uh, at the University of Richmond. He's also a host, one of the co-hosts of Backstory with the American History Guys. If you haven't heard it, you should. It's a really awesome show. It is a radio show, but it's also a podcast. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts. Definitely my favorite history podcast. Uh, so it was really cool to have him on. Um, I mean, he really is an internet pioneer. right? I mean, he is It's amazing. Um, he got in on the ground floor of the internet. Uh, you know, spreading the, the, the joys and the accessibility of the internet. Uh, and, I mean, backstory. Podcasts out, I mean, you know, they got in early uh, when this was a brand new technology, um, allowing folks to, 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 to access material. Um, it's pretty amazing stuff. Um, so we do actually talk about that, how he got into the, to the digital realm of history why he would get into that. Uh, it's a, that's a pretty cool story. And then we also get into post-Civil War Richmond, right? especially within the black experience. Um, what does emancipation mean to somebody? Right? I mean, obviously there's joy and jubilation, but there's also the other side of it where, holy smokes, where do I live? Right? How do I feed myself? Where's my job? Uh, it's a lot of heavy stuff that goes on. Um, very complicated, very complicated, uh, much deeper than, than people just having freedom and, and, and jumping around in joy. But it's a short episode. If you haven't noticed by, by looking at your, your iTunes feed or wherever you're listening to this, but this episode is a really great example of why you want to follow history replays today on social media, Facebook, on Tumblr. Or at History Replays on Twitter. Normally before I do these conversations, I will actually post, see if anybody has any questions they want me to ask. And on this, con- in, this, this, this in this conversation, uh, on Tumblr, uh, Seth Gans and Rocketworks both ask questions to get answered. Uh, Rocketworks, really cool uh, blog on there. You should check it out if you haven't, if you haven't followed it. Follow Seth too. Seth Gans. G-A-N-Z. Rocketworks, and the works is W-E-R-K-S. Check them both out. Uh, but I do want to say River City Segs, fantastic sponsor of this show. River City Segs is offering uh, special deals for Black History Month on their Black History Segway Tour. Go check that out. $25 a person. Excellent tour. Uh, excellent training, Right. The only indoor Segway-specific training area in Virginia. You can find out more information at rivercitysegs.com. That's rivercitysegs.com. Check out uh, River City Segs on Facebook, on 
Twitter at 804SAGS, and on Instagram. And always practice safe SAGS. Let me go ahead and get to this conversation. Sat in uh, Ed's office there at University of Richmond, which is a pretty fantastic office overlooking the beautiful campus of of University of Richmond. Uh, and once we started talking, I, I asked him how you know started asking how how did you get into the the digital realm of history. Tell you the story. Let's do it. Yeah, okay. So my whole purpose of history, what I got into, is telling a story that includes everybody. And so when I went to graduate school in the 1970s, there was this new social history. And the idea was that <gasps> women had history. Right. You know, African-American people had history. Uh, and poor people had history. And uh, before that, I was never interested in history. When I thought history was the presidents and junk they shoved down our throats in high school, who cares? They're dead. Right. right? But when the idea became it would actually be a way of hearing these voices from the past that otherwise wouldn't have a chance to talk, I felt more like a collaborator with these folks rather than sort of somebody sitting in judgment of them or promoting them. So um, from the very beginning, all the way back in the 70s, I learned statistics even though I had no native ability whatsoever to do that because my first book was about crime and punishment in the American South. And I wanted to figure out who the heck was in the penitentiaries, right? Who who were on the chain gangs? And so I had to teach myself computing to learn how to do that. And this is back in the days where you would take your big deck of IBM cards up to somebody in a white coat behind glass and give it to them. They'd run it on the computer, right? And you get all these big pages of uh, an accordion paperback saying you've made the same mistake 12,000 times. Sure, (laughs) sure. So, and then uh, I started another book in which I actually taught myself multiple regression analysis even to be able to tell the story of the 20 million people who lived in the American South from the end of Reconstruction to World War I. Even though I'm really interested in stuff like blues and jazz and country music and Pentecostal religion, I was trying to paint this portrait of them with, with sort of a statistical background. So all this is a way of saying I was real pain at UVA where I was uh, using their computers that I barely knew how to use and everything. Right. So they put me on this committee to oversee IT. And uh, one day they said, well, there's a gift uh, from IBM if we can think of something cool to ask for. And uh, so people from engineering said engineering. People from medicine said medicine. And I said, you know, we don't even have computers on our desks in English and history. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're your big department chair. It's 1990. We don't even have computers. Maybe we could do something with the humanities. And uh, everybody laughed at me, as they, as they always <laughs> did. But the head of the committee turned out to see that maybe that would be a good thing to do. So he said, well, Ed, what would you like to do now? I said, well, I'm getting as far away from computers as possible because it's very clear here in the early 1990s that that era has passed. <laughs> There's nothing sure. good that's going to happen. And I want to write this history that tells the story of every person who lived in a northern community and a southern community throughout the entire era of the American Civil War. And as I described that, I realized I was talking about a big database. So the idea was, and so the Internet existed, but not the web. Right. And the idea would be is that we would make a sort of a research experience in a box. So we would make these disks and send them to high schools and stuff, and people could explore history for themselves. So we started building that. And then one day, one of my colleagues called me and said, Ed, you need to come down here and see this. Here's something they're calling the World Wide Web. But that name seems unlikely to stick. It's sure. just too hard to say. But it's uh, made from a baby version of what we're already using to build this big database. So we can make what they call a site 
if you'd like to do that. Yeah. I said, great. So we made the Valley of the Shadow, two communities in the American Civil War, and we were on the web in its first year. Um, wow. And so I'm a pioneer mainly because somebody pushed me into the woods. Right, <laughs> right. You know? And so, so some of the best stuff happens because you, yeah, don't, oh, you it, have no it, idea what you're doing. Exactly. So you up- and nobody else knew what they were doing either. Right. So. I tried to explain to people PDF files didn't exist, so we had to invent some form to show an image from a newspaper. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? And, of course, you were trying to choke everything through a 2400 baud modem at the right. other end. Younger listeners can't even imagine sure. how terrible that was and the horrible sound that it made. Um, but as a result, uh, we were out there very early on, so American Heritage did a cool story about us and then wired Back when Wired was like the coolest magazine, mm-hmm. did this and described my wife described it as a picture that I, of the way I wished I looked, but I don't, which was kind of brooding and intense, right. <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, so I got into it kind of by accident, mm-hmm. but I've been sort of an evangelist for it for the last 20 years, saying uh, this is the most profound social change of our time. Um, right. And now with social media stuff, you see it only gaining force. Surely... Humanities people can think of something to do with the entire record of the human experience in this new media, right? Absolutely. So I was out beating on that drum for a long time, and we have the Digital Scholarship Lab here at the University of Richmond where we're making a digital atlas of American history that will show show social processes uh, moving like weather patterns on a map of the the Great Migration or the spread of slavery, things like that. So I was working on all that, and then one day a couple of colleagues and I did a program somewhere at UVA, and a guy came up and said, you know, you guys would be a great radio show. And we just laughed. I said, come on. (laughs) No, we wouldn't. And who listens to public radio anymore anyway? This is, you know, 2004, 2005, you know, and it seems clearly a fading medium. And uh, But we thought we'd give it a shot. And uh, so we went to the studio in Charlottesville, Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, and tried a bunch of experiments to see what it might be. And they weren't particularly good. And, <laughs> but uh, several public s- stations in Br- Richmond and Virginia picked us up um, and turned out that people were kind of interested in history if you made it somewhat interesting. Right. And then we hired this young guy, Tony Field from New York, who'd been a hotshot radio producer. He thought this sounded like it had possibilities and introduced this concept of podcast. And so he started making it a podcast even as we were making it a show. So now we find ourselves, I think this week we are up to 151 stations coast to coast. And we've had five and a half million downloads that's of our amazing. podcast, and we still are kind of making it up as we right. go. So that's how that's how it all fits together. So it's ironic that all the digital stuff, the high tech stuff, is just designed to connect with as many people as possible right. and tell the story of as many people as possible. Absolutely. Well, it gets into that. Um, you know, there's because you know I do tons of tours of the city, and there's so many people that, like you're saying, think. I don't, you know, I just, I don't want to do the history tour. Yeah, right. the Segway tours. And then you can get in and tell them, you know, if I can't find 10 stories in, in downtown Richmond that are interesting to people, I'm not doing, you know, I'm not trying. That's right. Right. And there, and like you said, I mean, there's a lot of the stuff that interests me is like the humans. Yeah. Just a regular dude, like guys are the same. We've been motivated by, you know, money and sex and, you know, power and 
you know, we really want money and power because we think we'll get more sex. You know, <laughs> it's since forever. Yeah, yeah. And you can, you know, really put yourself in those uh, um, very uh, similar situations. And I think um, the way you do it of actually taking people on the street is the best way to do it. It's interesting that podcasts right. and radio are better, I think, than television because yeah. it's more intimate and you feel like we're talking to people. Don't you there? Right. The podcast? <laughs> and so it's it's cool that this very simple kind of technology actually does the work that I've gone through all this rigmarole with more expensive technologies to do, which sure. is connect people with the past. And so that's cool that we, I think we have the same... Yeah, the same purpose. And, and it's interesting because I actually found uh, this is about a month ago. I was looking up some different stuff, and I found it was a, a, a history of U of R, and they were talking. I think it, I want to say it was seventy nine. That's right. That yeah. they put the first computer here, and that they had to get a crane. Right. They had to take a window out and get a crane to lift it in to the build. You know, which it is was just, the computer. Which is right. just mind blowing. Yeah. Um, you know the progress that we've made. Um, but now, now your cell phone's more powerful than that computer, right? And and the dial up took forever, and now I'm like frustrated because it took two seconds for t- Twitter to just come up just yeah. a second ago. I'm like, yeah. what's that? You know. Well, it is the big thing that's changing everything else that we do, and my sense of desperation all along has been, okay, big corporations and stuff are finding things to do with it, right? But if we, those of us who care about the human experience, don't get our act together, we'll just be left like roadkill right. along the way. So that's why I'm. But it, it, it is also can be this double-edged sword because there's, you know, finding things that are sourced, you can often trace it back to being sourced to nothing, that something is sourced from one website to the next website, and then you go to that website and it's sourced back to this. And it almost becomes a circle where, you know, this Tumblr page is, was sourced, you know, 10 steps back, and then you realize that first source sourced the same Tumblr page, which... You know, can, well, that's why I still believe in history as it's written by academics. You know, we, we, sure. we do something that's useful. Right. You, you write documented stuff that people can challenge, you know, and so you see how the history of Richmond has been moved forward by a series of books that uh, are a place that you can stand even when you're on a Segway. Okay. Right. Now, I know this actually happened because here's a quote from the newspaper at the time saying this is what the bread riot looked like. Sure, right? sure. Uh, and so that, that's how I kind of reconcile these different parts of my life. It's not that I think, okay, I'm ready to live these, leave this boring world of books and lectures behind and go out in the real world. No, the real world basically needs the stuff that we, we do in these quiet libraries. Sure. So the bouncing back and forth between the two is a kind of a, a good strenuous exercise. Right, and, and because it is also, there's amazing amounts of resources now that you don't even have to be in a library right. to do, to find, to hear these people's voices that, that are really, you know, chilling sometimes and you can really get into um, what what a lot of these people live through. Yeah, see, I think, I think history is better now than it's ever happened. Ever has been, uh, and we're just at the beginning of what can be a real revolution. And the fact that you can take a Segway tour, right, I sure. think, it is a kind of a revolution of history, right? Absolutely. And so it's an exciting time to, to be in Richmond uh, during all of this, uh, the sesquicentennial, but also sort of the larger transformation of the city's historical understanding. Absolutely. Um, and I guess that's it's a, it's a great segue. And I'm going to actually thought about this a second. Here we're going to. That, that way there. Sorry, that was the way I wanted it to be. Was it? Yes, it was. Sorry. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because uh, the as far as the, the actual history part of it, um, w- w- you know, 
I think there is a fantastic amount of um, conversation about the the, the, the Civil War um, right now, you know, the emancipation and all, you know. Um, but I feel like there's a – one of the things I wanted to you know, talk to you about is that there's a missing gap where it ends. Well, right? that's, what, that's what we're working on the, for April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Right. But that story, even then, um, where, you know, April 4th, you know, we get, you know, the, you know, the city is burned, the yep. union comes in, um, and then, you know, the book is over. That's right. right. And where, what happens? Like, because um, I think it's really mind-blowing to me, like, what happens where yesterday I, me and the other thousand people were enslaved? Today, I'm free. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? You know, where do you go? What do you eat? What do you, you know, um, not that these people aren't capable, but just... But you have nothing but the shirt on your back. Absolutely. Exactly. So that's, to me, is, you know, as we're imagining what this commemoration is going to be, which you're at the same time commemorating the end of the Civil War and over 800,000 people Mm -hmm. die, black and white, at the same time... And that's a very somber thing on one hand. On the other hand, it's the fall of the Confederacy that's trying to take apart the United States that right. have been based on slavery. That's a good thing. And then you have the end of slavery, but replaced by 150 years of segregation, poverty, and disfranchisement. Sure. <laughs> sure. So you're exactly right. And that's what we're struggling with uh, to figure out how do you tell all those stories at, at one moment uh, mm-hmm. because uh, you – we feel a great sense of responsibility to do justice to all of it. It's very clear that the you can't just celebrate it. Yahoo, slavery's done because right. we know what follows. On the other hand, the day you do wake up and you're no longer an enslaved person, they can't sell your children. Yeah, okay? yeah. It's a meaningful thing. And so that, that's the fine line. You want to say something, well, it didn't mean anything. Well, yes, it meant something profound. Right. See, and I think that's a um, it's a really interesting concept where now oh, the uh, the ownership of yourself also includes not only they can't take my children, but I have to figure out how to feed my children. Yeah, that's right. Right, and I mean, and how does that actually happen? I mean, who who who's feeding these people? Well, or, the United States Army helps for a good long time. That's what the Freedmen's Bureau is. They mm-hmm. have all this excess. Uh, food and blankets and things, and they're actually distributing them to the poor white and black people of the South in the wake of, uh, of that, of the Civil War. And so that gets you for a little while. But then after that, I mean, nobody knows, nobody has a plan, really, right? right? Um, and this is where sharecropping comes from. Nobody really intends for there to be sharecropping, but the landowners have the land but no money to pay. The, the workers have their labor but no money or land. Mm-hmm. And so they say, well, you work on my land, we'll grow a crop, then we'll split it. Right. And that's where sharecropping comes from, and it ends up being sort of especially terrible for the working people. But it's not something that people want to happen. The South is really bereft of capital. So, And Richmond in particular, I mean, here's a city that, you know, what, 35,000 before the war, then it triples in size and then sort of uh, collapses. Um, and then on top of that, you have no schools for the freed people. And right. then on top of that, uh, the main engine of the economy is gone, which is the Confederate government, which has been here feeding all of that. So it's... Uh, I think that the mixture of jubilation and despair among the black population 
and despair and determination to regain as much control among the white people is kind of what you're going to see played out for the next 20 years here in Richmond. But is there a... um uh, any evidence of the population shift, which seems like it must have been immediate. Um, I mean, in my my imagination, um, which can be quite dangerous, but um, the Union Army comes in. I mean, whites, you know, especially Confederate leaner, leaners, are, they're going to get out. Um, and especially, you know, because there's a huge slave population in the city. Right. But... It seems like there's more around the city, so I would imagine a massive influx into this. You know, well, your imagination is exactly right. I mean, so it's cities all across the South, and there's several reasons. One, you come in, there might be a job here, and mm-hmm. there's no job in the countryside, right. Right, except being on the same plantation where you were enslaved, and right. people would like to escape from that as much as they can. Uh, it's also a place. You know, before the Civil War, a lot of families had been divided. This is a chance to put your family back together into the city. And the main thing, in a city, women can find work. Okay. Okay? You know, um, that there's certainly, you know, African-American women working in fields uh, in the countryside, but it's not as well-paying as all the domestic jobs that would be in the city or the tobacco factories and things like that. So the cities of the South explode. Uh, with an influx of black and then white population. Most of the cities that we think of as being the the dynamic cities of the South, Atlanta, uh, Charlotte, uh, Raleigh, um, Birmingham, Mm -hmm. uh, are all products of the post-war era. Right. Um, They're not the big cities of the antebellum era, which would have been Charleston and New Orleans, port cities. And Richmond's kind of in between those. It's both an old city, then it becomes a new city. One thing I'd ask people to think about is, you talk about your imagination. We don't really have much to imagine with because we have that story of the Civil War and its collapse. Then you go to the fan, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of houses that were built in 1900. Right. Where did, what we think of as old it turns out to actually be quite new, and it's all based on something that was not here before the Civil War, which is the big tobacco money. Right. Right? And coal. We've become a, not not that we mine it here, but we are the sort of the transport center from from the west. So people don't really have a coherent story of that or of where the monuments of Monument Avenue come from. That's forty years after the Civil War, right. right? Right. But they somehow imagine that this is all one piece, but it's broken in lots of different pieces, and it's really hard to put it all back together. Sure. Well, and I guess that kind of kind of gets to uh, two questions that okay. were asked on Tumblr. Okay. Um, is like Seth Gans was asking. Um, do you think the city, that the burning of the city slowed the, slowed the growth? And if it hadn't burned, would it have been, you know, as big as Atlanta and Baltimore now, which, you know, Atlanta burned as well. So I don't know that that's... That's a great question. It turns out that the city was rebuilt pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, and that the fire didn't really do anything to set it back. You know, you have the paradox of Atlanta, of course, was aided by its being burned, right? right. You kind of get a clean slate and start all over again. Well, I was thinking the same thing with Richmond. I mean, because it's the, the building boom that must have happened after That's that right. would have been amazing. Well, you think, too, you know, I think people know that we have the first electric streetcar in the mm-hmm. world. Right. 1888. That's mm-hmm. not long after this, sure. right? So I, I, the burning and, actually... And you have to have somewhere to go. Exactly. So all that had to have been built... You know, within that 20 years. Yeah, and what they start doing is expanding to the west mm-hmm. almost immediately, right down Broad Street and then for the next 60 years. I mean, so the fan is a, a suburb 
Right. You know, it's very proudly not a suburb now, but that's how it began. Um, and then the West End and then the far West End and, you know, now short pump. Right. <laughs> it's all part of the same process. So I think the burning of Richmond uh, didn't really set it back. Um, and because, ironically, a lot of the uh, Union soldiers were in the South discover a different kind of tobacco, uh, bright leaf tobacco, that becomes Richmond's new path to the future when they develop a machine that can roll 100,000 cigarettes in a day. Right. right. So you got the different kind of tobacco in the market to it. So basically, it's like Richmond hits a reset button. Mm-hmm. And they'd, they'd had tobacco before, but the tobacco before was just rolled up, and then you chewed it and spit it out. Right. It really wasn't. It just made plug tobacco. Now, Richmond becomes the cutting edge of the new consumer market in which you're making cigarettes, and they have cards inside with actresses, many of whom have to wear tights, apparently, uh, for their roles, or baseball players, right? Right. Uh, and so Richmond goes to the cutting edge, both of transportation and of manufacturing and of commerce, within 20 years after the end of the Civil War. That's amazing. And, and that's Lewis, Lewis Skinter. That's is, right. you know, a part of that. And uh, that's uh, actually, I talked, like I said, Frank Robinson, we talked yes. about that, uh, about who, who he was. Who he's another person I think is just... Uh, Fascinating that nobody knows. You know, most people just think, "Wow, flowers." Yeah, most, exactly. You know, and it's like, wait. <laughs> thanks, Lewis. Ginter. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, the, most of the development of the whole North Side is Lewis Ginter. Right. Absolutely. Ginter Park and all that. And I'm sure you all talked about him and his uh, male partner being mm-hmm. buried in Hollywood Cemetery, which gives right. you some sense that the South was more complicated place than than we realize. Sure. Or, or going back to just humans. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know, we liked it. The uh, the old, you know, it's the good old days are not that much different than yeah, what are now. I, I always talk about uh, this. May be, and I'll do a little test on you. If I referred to a Pepperidge Farm vision mm-hmm. of the past, would you know what I was talking about? I, I could probably piece it together, but I haven't heard it before. Well, so. that's because you know there were just these, you know, Wilford Brimley, you yeah, know, and absolutely, all, and sort of back in the past where it was right. simple and all that sort of stuff, sure. you know. There's nothing as complicated as slavery. Right. Right? You know, at the, the human relationships. And I, I think 12 Years a Slave, the movie, does a good job of evoking that. People, including me when I was in school, just imagined that slavery was not interesting because it was just some people making other people do things. Right? But making somebody do something turns yeah. out, as, and, and, and when it's as intimate as slavery, turns out to be remarkably complicated. So, yeah, I rage against anybody who likes to imagine we live in more complicated times now. Right. But, well, we'll leave it the beaver. seems like an amazing place to live. Um, but when you consider the fact that, you know, segregation is happening, it's, you know, there's a reason that we don't see all that stuff, the, all the bad stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think even more directly, uh, Andy Griffith. Mayberry, right? Absolutely. A a city in the South in 1964 and 65 with no black people and no civil rights movement. Sure. And and I grew up in East Tennessee. This is what this accent you hear. And uh, watching the Beverly Hillbillies on television Mm -hmm. was an interesting thing since they talked like my grandmother. (laughs) They were making fun of her. It's like, yeah, but grandma is a great person. (laughs) Right. What's your point? Right. Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, And and it's also the, uh, I guess going back to the the influx of, uh, of, 
the it's newly freed slaves. Yeah. Um, which I haven't actually. I, I, I'm, I'm going to give it to him. It must have happened because I, uh, it was from a, a Rocket Works. This is actually um, W E R K S, which if anybody's listening, it's a really awesome Tumblr page. He has a great blog. Um, but uh, what sparked? It sounds like that's the answer to what sparked the remarkable number of new African American churches b- being built in the 15 years after the war. Yeah. Uh, well, it's partly the population boom, but it's Probably even more importantly, that churches have been integrated. Let the, let the record show he did air quotes there. Right. Uh, before the Civil War, blacks and whites were in the same churches, except for First African Baptists, which mm-hmm. was the largest congregation in the city, in which a predecessor of mine, the first president of the university, or the Richmond College, uh, Robert Ryland, mm-hmm. was the sort of state-appointed white pastor of an entirely African-American church. He had a pretty good line. He says... Uh, it was illegal for the brethren to preach, but they had very long prayers. Yeah. So, so he would just let them, you know, uh, sort of lead to some congregation. And that's the first African Baptist church, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. right, there, right there on Broad Street. And mm-hmm. so after emancipation or even during the war itself, you start seeing black Christians going to fellow white Christians in their churches and saying that we'd like to have our own churches. And whites for these, these very human emotions you're talking about of some mixture of understanding of why African-Americans would want their own churches and some relief that they can now just talk among themselves, right? Uh, uh, some often encourage the creation of black churches that are spinning out of the white churches mm-hmm. uh, and will even sometimes give them money or a little bit of land to do it. Other times, you know, it's an acrimonious thing, you know, that, and that um, people are trying to wrestle with what does it mean to be a good Christian at the same time slavery is gone and right. these people are not under our control now. Uh, and and African-Americans themselves say, finally, what we've been waiting for for generations a chance to hear the gospel and preach the gospel as it really was rather than being told by the white people that it's all a way for us to stay in line. And so you find remarkable creativity among African-American leaders that have been bottled up mm-hmm. and leadership capacity that have been bottled up. I think you see it in the churches first because that's a kind of a place that white people are saying, okay, that seems all right, followed quickly by businesses. And so what you have have realized is that white Southerners are kind of freaked out that these people that for over 200 years they've told themselves are incapable of of governing themselves are immediately creating not only churches and businesses but also political parties. And they're doing and creating schools. And so W.B. Du Bois had a great line. He said, uh, there's nothing the white man fears as much as a capable Negro. Right, right? Uh, And nothing they fear as much is that black people will succeed. Mm-hmm. And Richmond is a remarkable place for black success. And Jackson Ward, as well as all these African-American churches, are a remarkable testimony how people with nothing but the shirts on their back mm-hmm. create all the infrastructures of civic culture and of business culture really in almost no time. Right. And, 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 I, and that, that takes a – how um, – on a national scale, how significant would you say really Jackson Ward is, right? Because there's, um, especially, you know, if you study other areas, there are a ton of places that are nicknamed the Harlem of the South. Right, right. Right. And when you're studying Richmond, it becomes the Harlem of the South. And if that's the one. But when you really... You Which, know, of course, is so anachronistic. Long before Harlem was Harlem, 
Jackson right. Ward was Jackson Ward. Right. Right. And it's also um, <laughs> seems insulting because uh, Harlem is in the, is exactly. in New York. Exactly. Like they did that up there. We did this here. And so what, that, <laughs> what that means, of course, it's a center of cultural creativity. Right. Right. And um, that this is the place where you would see Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. you know, come play. So we'll we'll concede that. But yeah, my, my southern pride uh, is rankled by that kind of comparison because um, it was Richmond and New Orleans, ironically the two anchors of the slave trade, mm-hmm. uh, end up being major places where African Americans carved out some kind of autonomy and some sort of uh, community and some sort of progress uh, in the New South. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Ed. Hope uh, hope everybody enjoyed that. Let me know if you did. Let me know if you didn't. Contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. You can also email me, jeffmajor at historyreplaystoday.org, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R at historyreplaystoday.org. And help support the podcast. Right, write a review wherever you're listening to this. That would be really awesome. You can just rank it. Just just hit the little uh, stars there, the five stars, if you get a chance. And you can also sponsor the podcast. If you email me, again, Jeff Major at historyreplaystoday.org, I can send you all the information. We can talk about that. Or you can just make a little financial in- investment. That would be awesome. Uh, you can head over to historyreplaystoday.org, click on the support button. Just takes a second. Really appreciate it. Every little bit counts. Make that investment. And because I can tell if you're listening this far, you're obviously enjoying the show. So if you can't make a financial investment, just tell a friend. Tell somebody. Say, hey, check out this podcast about history of Richmond. And, you know, go ahead. And make it a great day.